You're listening to the Mzanzi Wako podcast. In one of its widest senses, this is a story about democracy in South Africa. Because a lot of these adolescents are positive because their moms couldn't get access to what we call prevention of mother-to-child transmission treatment. What is Mzanzi Wako exactly? Well, in essence, it's a research collaboration about youth health in South Africa. It is based in the Amatole district of the Eastern Cape, with its academic homes being at the University of Cape Town and Oxford. The AIDS and Society Research Unit wanted to answer several research questions about youth health, with a focus on medicines taking and sexual and reproductive health. It uses multiple methods and data sources to identify and investigate risk and resilience-promoting factors through linked qualitative and quantitative studies. But let's hear from the people behind the research. What does all that mean? This is Rebecca Hodes, the director at the AIDS and Society Research Unit. She's a medical historian and the principal investigator of qualitative research on the Nzanzi Wako study. Rebecca gives us some information and background on the research study. We've been running a study on HIV-positive adolescents and how they adhere to medicines. And I suppose it relates to some of the key questions that we've been confronting in the social sciences meets clinical and public health. So what we've understood in HIV and the epidemic is that if you provide people access to testing and you provide them good access to treatment, that they're going to live um, better, that their health will improve and that they will hopefully transmit less HIV. That's what we, mean, what we mean by treatment as prevention, that if everyone's on treatment, the amount of virus in their blood becomes so low that they can't transmit HIV and they themselves will live. Um, so this has been a kind of momentous change that we've, you know, in the last 30 or 40 years or so, HIV has gone from a dread disease to a treatable condition. And public health has understood that. And so what we've done is provide, hope to provide people access to treatment. That's the history of the global rollout, that we've gone from very few people getting access to treatment in the 1990s to initiating millions of people onto what's actually quite an advanced program of therapy. But we assumed that if you gave access to medicines, that people would continue to adhere to them, that they would continue to take them. And that's not the case. It's just not the case um, in reality that providing pills means that people take them. It's also not the case that these medicines are necessarily globally accessible. That's the commitment on the behalf of governments and their partners. But is there a perfect accessibility and a never-ending supply of these, these drugs in facilities? In very, very few cases, is that the case? In the cases where you do have access, people are not necessarily adhering to them. So we, we understand this as compliance in the history of, of how people take medicines. And much of what we know from HIV comes from other chronic illnesses like diabetes, for instance. But mostly throughout global history, people are not good at taking medicines. Um, and that's not different in the HIV epidemic. And so this was the kind of big question that we wanted to answer in the study was, why are people not complying? Why are they not taking their medicines perfectly? If there's access to, to pills, why are HIV transmission rates s still remaining quite high, um, especially among adolescents, right? So we started to understand that adolescents are not being served um, as they should be, that their mortality is, is worse, they're dying of AIDS, 
they're not doing as well as other adult populations, right? And so there's a question there partly about adherence. So why are people's behaviors not perfect? And then there's a question about why we are alarmed by this. And so there's, there is a story um, that we, we hold on to, which is about a cuneiform plaque. Cuneiform is a, a very ancient form of human script. So we're going back 5,000 years here. And there's a kind of idiom about this piece of script. Um, I'm sure it's, it's not historically accurate, maybe, in all of its senses. But this is what we understand as one of the oldest pieces of human script that we have. right? And what's remarkable about it is that it's not necessarily bureaucratic, doesn't have to do with government, and it's not religious. It doesn't have to do with, you know, the church or um, a religious movement. It's just an idiom about what humans are like. And if you translate this cuneiform saying into English, well, it translates as children these days, what's the next generation coming to? So an understanding about adolescence being in trouble is very fundamentally uh, wise. We've always thought this about the next generation, and that also is now translating into public health research. Why do we understand certain groups as being very risky or marginalized or vulnerable? And you know what what we can question is um, how do we create that category of who is vulnerable and who is at risk? And is this something that's new for humans? Is this fundamentally new for humans? Um, it's probably not new that we think that people are in trouble, that we think that children are in trouble. It's something that we really hold dear in our kind of human DNA, uh, DNA of wisdom. But I think, you know, through the history of intervention science, of us wanting to make things better, you know, if you look at the history of public health, we've only had access to modern medicines for a couple of decades. It was only really in the 30s and 40s that antibiotics began to make a big difference in people's health. Um, and with the HIV epidemic, we've we've moved forward very quickly to say a virus should be treatable. We've developed quite advanced tertiary medicines, and now we believe it should also be publicly accessible. And if people are accessing it, they should also be able to take it. So this is something that's really, really unique. And I think we lose sight of how particularly unique this is in human history. So that in a kind of broad historical sense is what the project is about. But is this just a historical project? It's a social science study that uses a variety of different methods to look at how adolescents, HIV positive adolescents, take their medicines, why they don't take them and how they practice sexual health. So together with um, a colleague of mine, she works in the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at Oxford, and we met each other during our doctorates there. I was working in the history of medicine and writing, especially on HIV in the media. And Lucy was working on a project called the Young Carers Study, which was about orphanhood and how children in circumstances of very significant paternal or maternal or both parental loss were looking after their own family members and living. Um, and our paths crossed and we began to kind of think together and then slowly, I suppose, really after hours, work together slowly. And then we won a grant combining a series of, of funds from 
the International AIDS Society and from the Nuffield Foundation. And we began to formulate these questions about adherence to antiretrovirals among adolescents in South Africa. And we say it's the largest study of its kind, mostly because a lot of this work happens, traditionally it happens within facilities. Our study is not based primarily in clinics. Um, it started there because the data that we use is also captured by public health, certain public health registers. But most of what we do in terms of interviews and speaking to adolescents, their caregivers, their parents, their teachers, lovers, friends, the whole lot happens in their own homes. And so that was part of you know what we initially sat with. How are we going to get the, the most honest, authentic, real-world accounts of how adolescents are taking their medicines. And what Lucy says is that it's like doing a study on truancy at school. If you want to find out why people are bunking, don't go to the classrooms. That, that's not where the bunkers are. If you want to do a study on how adolescents are taking medicines or not taking them, don't go and sit in a pharmacy at a public health care facility. They ain't there, right? They're gallivanting around shabines or hanging out in their own homes in what we've come to term free zones, um, where you know they're their own authorities or they have some adult authority. But what are ad- adolescents doing? They're becoming grown-ups. They're challenging the bounds of authority. They're transitioning from being children to being something else. And part of that is often you know about questioning what adults tell you to do. And who are the adults in some of these teenagers' lives? They're their parents often or their caregivers. Within the Mzansi Walko study, there is quite substantial parental death because many of our participants' parents have died of AIDS. And so they might be looked after by an elderly auntie, for instance, or you know, told what to do by a nurse. And so we've come to look at some of the, the orthodoxies that they that they've imbibed and then how they sit with those and how they resist those or challenge them in the course of of the study. And it's what we say in social science is it's it's longitudinal. So rather than being a single snapshot, a particular interview, which will only give you a sense of what someone's like that morning, maybe, or what they can recall maybe in the last couple of weeks or a month. Because the study is very, very long term, we've been going since late 2012 within different inceptions. We've come to understand how these behaviours can change. So if an adolescent has been told they are HIV positive, will they continue to know that information or their status as they get older? The assumption would be that once you know your status, right, once you know that you're HIV positive, you would always know that. But what we, for instance, in part of the research, we've looked quite a bit at HIV disclosure, right? And the assumption was that once a teenager is informed that they're HIV positive, usually by a nurse or a healthcare worker, they hold onto that knowledge and that they might change their behaviors, but forevermore they understand that they're HIV positive. That's their status, right? Or the kind of mirrored assumption is that if they don't know that they're positive, they will assume that they're negative. But that, that is a kind of stable understanding or stable belief. What we saw um, in our focus on disclosure is that actually HIV status understanding is much more transigent. That some adolescents who have been disclosed to, i.e. told, you're HIV positive, might start to question that and disbelieve it 
based on their experiences later and based on a kind of memory or um, account of piecing together what they know about their moms often or their dads or what they've pieced together about their own behaviors. What do we know about HIV? We know that it's sexually transmitted. That's one of the key lessons that adolescents are taught at school, right? But these are children often who haven't become sexually active. So there's the first orthodoxy about HIV. How can I be HIV positive? I've never had sex or I've never consented to sex or I can't remember having sex. Then we, we started to challenge that. Well, we assume that everyone who knows their status knows it, but that knowledge changes. It changes at different times. Then we thought, okay, well, if an adolescent is on antiretroviral treatment, do they have an assumption that they're positive then? But children don't necessarily know what their medicines are for if you have a drug that's um, you know, a fixed-dose combination with complicated names. What they've been told is, here is a medicine, you have to take this at the same time every day. And if you are given that information when you're a child, you, you might not understand the kind of biomechanics of it. Most of us don't know what, what is in the medicines that we take chronically. You know, how many of us could say, well, these are the precise active ingredients in this vitamin or this contraception or the statin. We believe we've got the kind of juju that we know it's going to work, but we don't know the precise kind of pharmacological actions of these medicines. And we shouldn't assume um, that HIV-positive adolescents or patients do, or that their caregivers do. So a lot of adolescents, um, we understood, were taking medicines, but because their caregivers hadn't wanted to say to them, you're HIV-positive, their caregivers had said, you must take this medicine for your heart or for your asthma or you know for another kind of medicine. It was just fundamental that they didn't have to unpack what this medicine was for, which also might mean this is your HIV status, this is a profoundly stigmatized disease that you might have gotten potentially from your parent or from your own risk behaviors. How do you saddle a child with that that massive, really adult understanding? Um, So I suppose coming back to a couple of stories then on the difficulties of compliance, um, we, we then sat with some troublesome findings because how HIV, how the public response has moved is that we assume that everyone should be tested for HIV and if they're positive, everyone should be given access to medicines. And of course, we make that assumption for children. Children are one of the most kind of protected populations and that's something that really quite universally we have consensus about. And interestingly, in South Africa, that was the beginning of the rollout Right, we weren't providing access to medicines for rape survivors. We were providing access to medicines for mothers who were going into labor so as not to transmit HIV to their children, to their infants. So the very beginning of the rollout in South Africa was in order to treat children. There is a sense that children are the most inviolable, that they should be the most protected of of all populations, in part because we understand they can't make decisions for themselves. They're minors. They're minors in law. They're minors in public health, right? Um, So children have been the kind of vanguard for advocating and then providing access to medicines. Um, But then there is also a question of how much they can consent to on their own 
on their own basis, right? If we've initiated children onto antiretroviral medicines or given them an HIV test, what do we also require that they know? And if they know something, what do they need to understand about that? And then how do they have to change their behaviors? All of this has to be monitored by adult authorities. So then let me come to one of the contestation in the work. It's This is really very difficult because we're dealing with a human rights approach in some ways meets a utilitarian public health approach. And they, these aren't always reconcilable, that the human rights approach would be you only test someone who's consented to an HIV test. But how does a child consent? What do we, what do we take as consent? Is it nodding? Um, you know, do children listen sagely to adults in healthcare contexts, in educational contexts? Of course they do. Children listen to what elders are, elders tell them that is what they're taught to do, right? Adolescents start to maybe question and be naughty um, and to disobey. So I suppose that brings us back to the, the context of the interviews, because what we figured out quite quickly in one of the earliest phases of the work is that children and adolescents are not behaving like themselves in facilities. They're shy, reverential, obedient. They give the spiel that they think adults want to hear. And outside of those those environments is when they, you know, where you get a sense of what people are really doing. And adherence to medicines, um, cannot only happen. You can't only take your HIV medicines in a clinic. You have to take them at home, on the way to school, in a taxi, on the weekend, after the soccer match, at your boyfriend's house, you know, while watching TV, on your phone. You have to be able to take medicines in the most ordinary, in the most ordinary banal ways. A lot of these adolescents are positive because their moms couldn't get access to what we call prevention of mother-to-child transmission treatment. Rebecca says that in one of its widest senses, this is a story about democracy in South Africa. A lot of these adolescents are positive because their moms couldn't get access to what we call prevention of mother-to-child transmission treatment. So especially in the Eastern Cape, and the study is based in a particular health district of the Eastern Cape, the rollout, the provision of public access to these medicines happened relatively late. It happened from around 2005. In the Western Cape, where healthcare services were better and where certain government authorities had assistance from organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières or um, were able to get uh, assistance of um, overseas organizations or universities and researchers, they provided access to these medicines from the late 1990s. But because of the delays in the antiretroviral treatment rollout, and those are profoundly political, as well as, you know, quite banal to do with health financing and enacting and providing these services, it was only really from about 2005 that these medicines became available publicly for mothers in labor to prevent transmission of HIV to their children. And this is also a real question. You know, we say prevention of mother-to-child transmission. We don't speak of prevention of parent-to-child transmission. We're already saying that the vector of HIV is the mother, right? There's a real there's a real weight that's added to that. And we must also question that. Why do we why do we regard mothers as the kind of principal source of HIV transmission? We know that 
HIV transmission doesn't happen in isolation. We have to regard this as a social, um, just the word transmission. It's, it is something that's transmitted and shared. So in this kind of story about democracy, because of the delays and the obstructionism towards the provision of treatment that we saw under the Mbeki presidency, these children became positive that they their mothers couldn't access the medicines and that they were born HIV positive. But usually, children who are born with HIV live well for a number of years, but do eventually get an opportunistic infection and their immune systems weaken and they will go on to develop AIDS and die of AIDS unless they're given a, an effective treatment intervention. So we saw a cohort of children becoming positive, right? Many cohorts, many, many, many hundreds of thousands of children the world over. In this particular context of post-apartheid South Africa, we saw children becoming HIV positive because their mothers couldn't prevent it, because they couldn't access the medicines in the public health sector, but they are still alive, living with HIV, because they could themselves later access the medicines. And not only them, their caregivers could champion that access, and so could the healthcare workers. So we speak about this kind of triumvirate of healthcare access that, of course, an adolescent herself has to be able to take the medicines, but she's likely also got certain proxies and certain support from a caregiver, be that a parent or someone else, or a healthcare worker. And what we've seen in the study is that once one of those agents, once one corner of that triangle becomes blurry, that it becomes very difficult for a teenager with HIV to adhere well to her medicines and um, to remain healthy. So what happens now that you have all the research? It's one of the, the key questions, and it is a debate within the study, because, you know, research doesn't necessarily have to have a policy impact. And classically, we know we speak of blue skies research, which is research that's kind of just, just theoretical or just about ideas, because there is, I think, an impoverishment of insisting that every research project have a policy impact or, you know, have have a direct benefit for all of the, the troublesome ways that we can define this. That said, it is a very firm commitment of the study. And there are some ways that our research has, has impacted policy. So if I could speak about one. Last year, it was the kind of sum of of some years of work with our partners in the Department of Health and others in UNFPA. And what we did for a number of years was get together, we reviewed different evidence bases on key elements of of adolescent and youth health programming. And those were identified in two ways, partly through our work with adolescents and then through work with, with researchers and policymakers. And really, the the line between these cohorts or these groups isn't fixed. There must be a blurriness in it. And I think in some ways that's what HIV researchers have done. They've had to span boundaries and use different knowledges and combine knowledge bases to find what works. We It's very imperfect, but we are making overtures to, towards each other. So what we did was we, with government partners and adolescents, using a range of different techniques, 
combining different evidence bases, looking at sexual reproductive health, substance abuse, tuberculosis, these key topics that were identified with adolescents as well as researchers and policymakers. We then wrote the National Adolescent and Youth Health Policy, which was published last year. Make sure you listen to the next installment where we'll speak to more members from Mzanzi Wako.